As a mother, wife, and divorce attorney for over 15 years, experience has taught me a lot about how to deal with times of uncertainty, transition, and facing opportunities for growth. I'm happy you're joining me for this part of the journey. When parents part ways, they often encounter many challenges that can make the co-parenting relationship very difficult. Whether it's a difference in opinions over parenting values or household operations, bedtimes, vaccinations, whatever the host of issues are, it can be incredibly difficult to co-parent in a way that's healthy. One tool that's available to help many parents who are encountering these kinds of challenges is to bring in a parenting facilitator or parenting coordinator. Here to talk with me today about the role of the parenting facilitator and or parenting coordinator is Kathleen Schofield. Kathleen has a practice here in Dallas where she works with families and will provide more details about her practice in the notes below. And I just wanna say Kathleen, welcome. And thank you so much for taking time to come talk with us today about how we can help parents be better parents for their children. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm really glad to be here today. As we start off talking, tell us a little bit about how you got involved in working with families who are going through divorce or separation. Sure. Um, so this is actually a second career for me. Um, I had the fortunate luck to meet probably the original and, and first parenting facilitator in our area. You know, many years ago, um, you know, I worked with uh, Carrie Beard for about five years, kind of all the way through graduate school and as a practicum student. And I really got a glimpse of it's a very interesting intersection between law, which I, I think is incredibly interesting. and and, you know, therapy, um, you know, so kind of, you know, over the years have done a lot of training with different, you know, individuals, but then also have done some of my own studies into why, you know, we fight, why we have conflict, how it perpetuates to really develop my own style. So that is great. Um, so you and I know about the role of parenting facilitator mm -hmm. and parenting coordinator, but a lot of parents who are watching today may not be familiar with these terms at all. Mm -hmm. Can you give us a brief description of what each of those roles are and how they differ? Sure. You know, that's actually, I hear that a lot. Parents go, I, I didn't know that you existed. I didn't know this role existed. We need this. It's going to be really helpful. So a parenting facilitator is a neutral and unbiased professional that has received really specific training in this area, training in basic mediation, advanced family law mediation, parenting facilitation and coordination and domestic violence. And we're included somewhere in a court order, whether that's temporary order, you know, a mediated settlement agreement or a final decree. And we're put in place to help really stabilize the co-parenting core. Um, we try and help improve communication, make it more business-like and professional. We do provide accountability. You know, we do expect that the decree is going to be followed, the court order is going to be followed. And sometimes we need to provide accountability that everybody is adhering to agreements that have been made. And then we do provide documentation that can be helpful later on down the road if we need to report to the court kind of what's transpiring between two parents. So really we're trying to exact a change, trying to make things better and more productive, help them navigate through that rocky period that sometimes exists 
prior, during, and after divorce and separation and make things a little better for the children. So it sounds like in parenting facilitation, what I'm hearing you say is, first of all, there's a court order in place, and then there, that gives the structure and accountability as you help the parents navigate through some of the issues that they're having. Yes, that's correct. And then we also do have the ability to you know, send status memos to the court if we need to, as requested by either side. We can be called to testify in court if needed to provide, again, the court with additional information about what's transpiring between these two individuals. So that's very clearly in the facilitator role. So then what is the parenting coordinator role and how is that different? You know, it is similar in that I'm I'm going to engage in the same therapeutic approach and style. I am going to work to help them communicate, come to agreements, mediate decisions. I really want to keep everybody out of constant litigation as much as I can. But the parent coordinator is a confidential process. So I can, you know, be called to, to court. I, I don't release the file. I don't send status memos to the court. We're basically either meeting or we're not meeting you know so that would be um, for parents who who do want to keep this process confidential but still want the weight of the of the court order there so what how do you help um, parents or maybe the lawyers who are working with the parents decide whether or not it's better for this family to be have parent uh, coordination or a parent facilitator you know that's a it's a difficult point um, you know I think if there is future, you know, litigation, or maybe we've got pending litigation. You know, at times I will work with parents before the divorce is finalized because they are really struggling to, to co-parent even in the midst of this. You know, so I think if if we've got significant issues with adherence to the court order, you know, we've got, you know, problems with one or both parents, you know, sticking to agreements. If there is the need for future litigation, which sometimes is a possibility, I think the facilitator is definitely the role, you know, that needs to be utilized at that point. When um, when is a good time to bring in a parenting facilitator or coordinator? You know, that's a really good question. And I think that really does depend on what is transpiring within the family, within the parents. Um, you know, if the children are starting to become the center of the conflict, they're aware of it, they're, they're hearing a lot of adult information, they're getting caught in the middle, we start to see the children suffering from maybe some psychological or behavioral issues. I really think that implementation at that point for that neutral party to come in and really try and work with the parents would be really beneficial. But, you know, sometimes people divorce pretty well and then a year or two down the road, we encounter some issues and, you know, the parents decide, hey, we we've really got a lot of conflict. We're not, you know, we're not working well together. We need to come to someone, you know, who will help us stabilize. So another term I think that is used a lot for helping families reach resolution is a mediator. And you <laughs> talked about mediation training as part of your training, but how does your role as a facilitator differ from say a mediator? Well, I believe, you know, the mediator is just utilized in one, you know, block of time, one chunk of time, and then it's done. And with the parent facilitator, I'm going to meet with them as long as I need to until that co-parenting core and communication is stabilized. And I actually think it's a really good tool to place a parent facilitator in there so that the parents have someone to come to before they kind of rush back to court or need to contemplate litigation. So I work really hard to 
to stabilize, get them on maybe an as needed basis. But, you know, I mean, teenagers are hard. You know, you got, you got lots of developmental challenges that come with, you know, the different age groups. And I think they bring different kinds of conflict to the parents. So I think it's good um, to have someone that you can come to, you know, that will help you to kind of stabilize, that knows your case, you know, that you can work with intermittently if you need it. So is one of your goals then in working with family to help help them find resolution to some of those burning issues? Yes. Um, you know, the Texas Family Code is pretty clear in, you know, what a parent facilitator's boundaries are. You know, so we're never going to have an opinion or position on, you know, some of the bigger rights like, you know, primary residence, you know, rights and duties and responsibilities for decision making, parenting time, custody and access. But some of these other things, you know, we definitely can help to kind of say, hey, look at it from a different angle or how is this affecting your children or, you know, how are your children feeling? So we can, you know, there's so, I mean, there's so many other things that they argue about. There are lots of things. What are some of the most common um, things that you hear in your role as parenting facilitator that people are having a hard time making decisions about? Well, you know, most recently it has honestly been, you know, a lot surrounding COVID and vaccinations and what quarantine looks like and masks and things of that nature. You know, I think it is not uncommon for parents to have, you know, differing positions. And like, for example, if a child is exposed at one home, but two or three days later is supposed to go to the other home, what do we do? You know, so those are things where I try and orchestrate, you know, some type of compromise, you know, if one parent is going to miss some time, where can we make that up? You know, things of that nature, um, you know, and, and, and frankly, sometimes it's just as small as like haircuts and, you know, sports equipment and decisions about extracurricular activities and, you know, things of that nature. So it really kind of spans, spans the board. <laughs> so how does it work? How do you take two people who have polar opposites, because opposites do attract, which oh, is good do. for both you and me, <laughs> but uh, they do. So how do mm -hmm. we take people of polar opposites and help them find resolution. Mm -hmm. and, and I always stop and say, because, you know, people need to understand going to a judge is one means of resolution, it right? Is, yeah. You can have mm -hmm. a third party who's making the decision mm -hmm. um, who won't know your family as well mm -hmm. and know all the ins and outs. Mm -hmm. So what, how, how does it work? Well, I think you just made a really interesting point about the judge because, you know, when you go to court, you do have a limited time. And a lot of times when people come and see me, they feel like they've never been able to kind of really flush out and share their story. So the first thing that I do is I meet with each parent individually to kind of hear the relevant history, but I do wanna establish a rapport and trust in a relationship because a central part of parent facilitation is I'm gonna challenge each parent. There's gonna be points where they like me and they don't like me <laughs> and that's okay because I've earned their trust that when I do challenge them, it's in the best interest of their children. So that's kind of the first thing that I do is, hey, I wanna meet everyone, I want them to get to know my style and approach, answer questions. I want to earn their trust. And then once I've done that, I bring them back together for joint sessions. And those usually occur every couple of weeks where I like it to stay very agenda driven, very solutions focused. We're learning different ways to communicate. And I think that's the hardest part is pulling them out of that cycle of kind of what I'd say conflictual or poor communication that doesn't lead to any deeper understanding or solutions 
solutions or agreements. So I think the other big piece outside of challenging is we need to provide people with education and some understanding about what I think is happening to help them pull them out of kind of that, that cycle of, oh, husband and wife, exes, you know, that umbrella, that hat, and into more of a workable co-parenting relationship. So you just talked about kind of the cycle oh, yeah. of communication. <laughs> so let's help us understand this because, you know, when you go to have children, nobody gives you the handbook that what? says, here's how to be an effective parent with mm -hmm. the other person. Mm -hmm. You know, we're operating off of, you know, probably how we were raised in many circumstances. Mm -hmm. And that's playing out, you know, the mm -hmm. things my parents did well, the things they didn't do well. Mm -hmm. But you have two people who are coming from completely different world experiences. Mm -hmm. So so help us understand what some of these cycles mm -hmm. are. So I think the first one that I talk about a little bit is the starts of what I would call conflictual communication or this triangle. And I actually draw it up on a, on a whiteboard in my office, but it is what was said and what was heard and what was meant. And a lot of times in between two people, especially two people who have been arguing for a while, there's a lot of assumption of intent. So what one person said was not necessarily what the other person heard. They may have heard something different and the meaning behind what is being discussed is, is lost and frankly different between the two people. So I help people by saying, okay, parents, tell me what you just heard or tell me what you just said or meant and I encourage them before they escalate and react to ask more questions this is what I heard you say is this what you meant or I'm watching you escalate and get upset tell me what you heard me say then we start to understand the nuances behind what people are hearing we get them to always ask for more information before again escalating and reacting and i tell people in communication we need to avoid three things escalation defensiveness accusation oh. <laughs> <laughs> the minute any one or all three of those come into our conversation we've lost our ability to be productive and i say that consistently so that triangle of first ask questions before we escalate or asking for more information to better understand listen to understand instead of listen to react okay but, <laughs> but why should I listen to understand I know what he's been saying for all these years or what she's been saying and I'm done I don't want to understand mm -hmm. like how do you how what what is the importance of understanding how is that beneficial for me I understand it might be good for the other person but mm -hmm. but what's in it for me well I think I think you just hit on a really important focus, which is we have to remove the focus between the two parents and put it back on the children. And that's the problem is everybody comes in with a very fixed narrative and story about who that other person is and the intent behind why they're saying and doing things. I'll listen to that first, you know, to a certain extent, but then, hey, we've got to push them out of that narrative to say, if I say and do this, I need to ask myself two questions. How is this going to affect my children? How are my children going to feel about that? So I've got to pull the, the narrative away from that husband and wife ex umbrella, and we've got to put it under the co-parenting hat, co hat to say, wait a moment, my focus needs to be my children. I can keep fighting with my co-parent, but that's going to have some really negative effects on my children. I need to do what's in the best interest of the children, not what I'm feeling in that moment. So let's talk about that for a minute, because it is something that I, I'm very aware of. And, you know, I think for any 
lawyer who's worked with families in conflict, um, you know, we see what happens with kiddos mm-hmm. in the midst of conflict. As a therapist, what what is going on with children who are experiencing a lot of conflict between the parents? You know, it can be a combination. We see a couple of different things. Um, I think, you know, just kind of the foundation, we see anxiety, depression, you know, a lot of signs and symptoms. Um, you know, you see some behavioral issues. They may be acting out in school. You know, they may be struggling with their friendships, with their peer group. Maybe they're not sleeping, having some issues with with eating and with food. Um, But then if we dig a little bit deeper, there's a little bit of these these traps that children will fall into, especially when they start to get, you know, enough adult information Mm -hmm. where, you know, they think in terms of black and white and right or wrong. So they may want to fix the issue. They want to manage their parents' emotions. They may want to figure out who's right and who's wrong. They may take sides. All of those things not only have devastating effects on children in that moment, but they they will reverberate into later years. And I do work a lot with um, I would say children of high conflict divorce, but they're adults now. They're in their 20s, their 30s. They're falling into some of the same patterns. They're engaging in some of the same conflict. They're also having some trust and attachment issues in their adult relationships, whether that be intimate or friendships. So the things that parents are doing now that are affecting the children, they need to remember that they will have long lasting effects much later into their adulthood. And then also when they become a parent. And that's where I really try and put that focus back on the children to say, hey, it isn't just about how your children are doing right now. These are things that are going to be a part of their adulthood. They're going to have to fight or work through at some point, which to me is really, it's really sad. It is. But I, as I'm listening to you talk, I'm also thinking about how, um, how, how very natural it is as we kind of shift you know, um, without awareness, without education, I think our default programming it is to create an environment that can be so damaging for children. So mm-hmm. I'll tell you. So here's what here's what I'm sitting here listening to you talk about is you know I know as a parent there are things that I believe are right for my children, and if I'm going to come into you to see you, I might have to hear that maybe what I'm thinking about isn't right, and so, but but if I don't change my way of thinking about this, then the risk is that my children are gonna pay the price for that. Mm -hmm. So I can be right all day, Mm -hmm. but if it's hurting my children, Mm -hmm. then what's the value of being right? Mm -hmm. You know, I think, I hear that a lot, you know, that I'm right, they're wrong. Again, it's that rigidity, that black and white type of thinking. And I actually subscribe to conflict existing a little bit more in the gray. Um, You know, sometimes I'll talk with parents and clients to say, hey, outside of just the normal things that we have conflict of, I think we actually fight about two different concepts. And the first one is unmet expectations. And where that really hits home for divorce and high conflict families is I hear all the time, well, I thought things would be so much better when we separated and got (laughs) divorced. Like, I thought we'd be parenting so much better. But the fact of the matter is that you're still this 
the same people and you still probably have some of the same dysfunctional communication mm -hmm. styles. So that expectation that's unmet, you know, where we thought everything was going to be so much better, you know, and it's not, can leave us with a lot of anger and resentment and frustration. That other piece is this idea of intent, that someone is purposefully doing something to hurt us or to hurt our feelings or to make life difficult or we're being accused of doing something on purpose. I like to pull away from this idea of right and wrong to say, hey, let's move beyond that to say what's in the best interest of the children and how can we compromise because the resolution of conflict is all, all day always going to be better for the children. So, so to really be able to find that resolution, I have to be willing to let go mm -hmm. of the need to be right or wrong, yes. right? Or to have the other side be wrong. Mm -hmm. Usually it's mm -hmm. my need to be right, have the other side be wrong. <laughs> just saying, I have a little bit of experience in this area. Uh, but but I, and listen, this is just like human nature. I mean, yes. it doesn't have to be a spouse. It can be a work person, you know, mm -hmm. whatever. But that desire to be right. Mm -hmm. And we really have to to look that there's something more important going on here, which is really to try and understand. Mm -hmm. And that's the whole difference between the passive listening versus the active listening. You know, passive listening is listening with the intent to already respond. And that's where we kind of engage in that verbal volleyball, where we go back and forth. We're not really leading to any sort of agreement or solution. We just want to be right and for them to be wrong. And in reality, that's where a lot of that escalation, that frustration, you know, when we're already going up, in a conflict, we're going to lose our ability to be productive. So the act of listening is more listening with the intent to understand, to have empathy, to put ourselves in someone else's shoes, and to understand, hey, what are they trying to, to tell me and what do I need to do with this? Um, I think right and wrong really needs to be shifted. When we talk about like success in this, it isn't necessarily that I'm the right parent, it's that my children are gonna be okay, that my children are removed from the conflict, that we're doing the business of co-parenting and we're doing it well, that to me is being right. Um, you know, so that's where I go. <laughs> so I was just gonna ask you, what does success look like in working with parenting facilitator? Where does, I mean, are, are things actually getting resolved? Are decisions being made that, um, you know, even if both parents aren't fully in agreement, they can still have respect for the decisions. I mean, how, what does that look like in your office? You know, I think that's a really uh, good question. I'm not necessarily looking for the absence of conflict because raising children is really hard. And I feel like it's harder now than it ever has been. I think that there's a lot of demands on parents. What I'm looking for is can you navigate a conflict? Can you communicate successfully and come to an agreement, you know, without it being World War III, without your children being placed in the middle without them hearing a lot of adult information. So I think success is, hey, we're doing the business of co-parenting and we're doing it well, you know, and we're not escalating to the point where, you know, we can't come to any sort of agreement. Okay. So I have to just ask you this because one of the things I hear often, um, whether it's from my clients or just out in general, just the world is we're labeling pathologies. So 
he's a narcissist. I could never co-parent with yep. him. She's a nar- like what? But what role does pathology have? Are there some actual bona fide pathologies that make mm-hmm. it impossible to co-parent? I mean, I'd say yes, but I think um, a lot of times when we're labeling pathologies in the way that you're kind of sharing with me, um, we're labeling features. And you know, research shows that six months prior to the separation to two years after the decree is signed, that's a very ambiguous window you know, because sometimes it takes longer for a quarter to be signed. That is the most conflictual time for those parents. And we see features of personalities come out in that period of time where after the fact, parents go, I can't believe I did that. I can't believe I said that. What was I thinking? It's this tornado. It's this hurricane of a storm that they're in in the moment. So, you know, Yes, there are pathologies that are very difficult, you know, to work with a narcissist or a borderline personality disorder, but that needs to come from an actual licensed evaluator. I do see people present with features of certain, you know, personality disorders because I think some of the situation does bring some of that out. I just, you know, I reserve that diagnosis for someone who has actually done a very thorough assessment. So just because somebody is exhibiting features of, say, a narcissistic mm-hmm. personality disorder doesn't mean they have a full-blown disorder. Mm-hmm. And it could be that, this is what I'm hearing you say, mm-hmm. it could be that if we can kind of stabilize the moods and the emotions Mm -hmm. that we may be able to move Mm -hmm. through that Mm -hmm. and that they're not always going to be showing up as a raging narcissist. Now, I will say there is a little caveat to that. There is, um, it is part of the parent facilitation process where, you know, one or both parents will have a diagnosable personality disorder. So whenever I'm approaching a case or working with parents, my first Um, you know, direction is always to try and exact change in this family system. And I will work very hard to do that. However, there are points where what I am actually doing is providing documentation about what is transpiring and really being able to say to the court, you know, hey, this is what one or both parents are doing. And this is very, very concerning. We either need additional interventions. You know, I need more therapeutic support. We need, you know, to work with this parent in this way. So there are pieces where we do see mental illness um, and substance abuse actually, you know, uh, accompany some of these high conflict cases. And it's just knowing and, and working and trying to, you know, provide that accountability and, and documentation that is needed. And I think I think one of the realities that people, you know, need to understand that I, I mean, when, when I'm dealing in working in those cases as well, is that even if the other parent is ha- does have a diagnosis, substance abuse or whatever, this is still the parent of your child. So mm-hmm. somehow, whether their role is going to be minimized because they you know, can't make control their mm-hmm. impulsive behaviors and it's damaging to the child, whatever, whatever way that that's gonna show up, um, you're still, as the parent maybe who doesn't have the diagnosis, still gonna help your child learn to navigate that relationship mm-hmm. because that mm-hmm. this person is a part of them. Mm-hmm. I think it's also important to remember that a child is half one parent and half the other parent. So even if we do have one parent that has some sort of diagnosable mental illness, we still need to help the child manage that. But then also we don't want to throw the child into any type of identity crisis. <laughs> you know, So we don't want one parent bad mouthing the other parent because ultimately the child's going to go, well, wait, that's half me. Do I have 
do I have that? Right. You know, is that part of me? You know, one, parents will anecdotally say, oh, you're just like your father or your mother does that. Oh, that is that is a very damaging statement. That kind of stays with a child. Kind uh, of creates, again, that inner conflict. So. so even if maybe both parents aren't willing to continue to show up for parenting facilitation, is there still value in at least one parent participating in the process or how does the process, is it a different kind of role that might be a better fit for that parent? You know, that's an interesting question. So on from the parent facilitation front, both parents are court ordered to participate until the facilitator states that they can go on an as needed basis. So if one decides to not participate, then that would be something that I would notify the court in a status memo of because, you know, Let's be honest, the majority of my people do not want to come and sit in the room with their co-parent, you know. And in fact, they'll have individual sessions with me and say, hey, this process is really hard. I get upset. It's it's difficult for me. But there is so much value in sitting together and communicating and trying to find a different way to navigate some of these issues. So if one parent doesn't participate, that's a, that's a problem. One thing I have noticed in my practice is I used to think I needed both people in a room to work through some conflict, and I actually do not. If I have one individual, and this would be a voluntary, like private counseling situation, if I give them some of these tools, and there's at least a foundation of some, some decent communication there, even they will share it with the other person, whether that's a partner or you know a family member. They'll share what they're learning in session, and they're bringing something different to the table, which hopefully will prompt the other person to respond and do something different. You know, like I have a way where if I'm if I'm going to challenge someone or I'm going to have a difficult conversation, I tell them ahead of time, "Hey, I'm going to say something that might make you a little upset or might make you want to feel defensive, but please know that." I think this conversation would be really productive and beneficial for both of us, so stay with me. Let's not get angry, hear what hear what I'm trying to say, let's come to some type of, so I do it ahead of time. Yeah. And I kind of ease them into it a little bit before I kind of challenge or, or have a crucial conversation. Have you had success with working with parents and parenting facilitation, and what does that look like? I have had some, you know, some success, um, you know, it, there, there. When you get to a good working place, they do start to release that tension. Now, I will be honest, it's harder when there's active pending litigation. I get a lot more success when things are kind of done and they're settled and it's like, okay, let's put everything back together and let's go down a different road and you know, let's communicate a little bit more effectively. When there's pending litigation or active or we've got something that has really escalated, um, sometimes that's gotta be resolved before I really start to get us into the active working phase, so. I, I definitely do get some, you know, some success. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I guess I, it's just the questions I ask that is like, well, well what is success? Mm -hmm. And it sounds like from what you've been telling us, it's really, it's really focused on the children. Yes. Really yes. the children yes. being able to yes. navigate the relationship with both parents. There is a, 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 a very dangerous and kind of tricky narrative that a lot of, you know, people just naturally engage in. It's this cycle where we justify our actions and our communication and our behaviors as a response or reaction to the other person. And what I hear a lot is, well, but they did this, so then mm -hmm. I did that. Right. Well, I never would have done that if they hadn't done this. Therefore, 
I'm, I'm going to very quickly absolve myself of that accountability and responsibility. I'm going to put it back on the person, the parent that I think started it. That's one of the biggest cycles that leads to success. If we can break that cycle to say, you are responsible for your behavior, your communications, how it's affecting the children outside of whatever your co-parent is doing, we've got to break that justification and hold everybody accountable for what they're doing and what they're bringing to the table. And really, when you do that, you restore somebody's power because it Mm -hmm. is a really miserable place to live Mm -hmm. when the other person is controlling your Mm -hmm. behaviors and Mm -hmm. responses. You know, I hear parents say a lot, I kind of know how we got here, but we're so far in, in this deep conflict, I have no idea how to get us out of it. Because again, we have the, we get kind of triggered by our co-parent. Maybe they say something, you know, we respond and we react, we justify our communication and behavior as a reaction to them. But by the way, our reaction and response becomes their triggering behavior. So now we go round and round where each other, they're always blaming the other person. It's always the other person's fault. And again, when we remove the focus from the parents and put it on the children, then we start putting them as the focus. How is it gonna make my children feel? How is it gonna affect my children? And you get to reclaim your own Mm -hmm. power and really playing your role in your mm-hmm. relationship with your children. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they the other parent can be who they're going to be. Exactly. But no longer mm-hmm. does that sideways glare or the mm-hmm. heavy, you know, breath mm-hmm. or whatever, does that, does that trigger you? Mm-hmm. Right? I think it's also really confusing for children. If there was conflict before the divorce and now there's conflict after, well, what was the point of of Mm. all of this you know because this was supposed to make it better and it didn't versus if you if you have conflict before you're able to achieve a good working co-parenting relationship that's actually an improvement and the children aren't around that they also will watch you go into hopefully healthier relationships you know that can be very reaffirming for the children to say hey i understand both of my parents are good people they just weren't great together and that's okay and i get that and that is a wonderful thing. I mean, I mm-hmm. certainly know I have many peers who will say that about mm-hmm. their family's divorce. Not enough. I mean, I think I think mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. in the midst of this, the pain of the conflict mm-hmm. and the pain of the transition mm-hmm. is an incredible opportunity to learn some new skills. Yes, yes. Yeah. And and I think you hit something really great before when you said, "Hey, sometimes some of these are learned reactions or responses." Maybe going back into our own childhood, and you know, I don't think we did divorce real great many years ago, 80s, 90s, you know, we split kids up and things of that nature. And we didn't have the therapeutic support that we have now. And so I do see a lot of people, parents now that were products of high conflict divorce then, and they become very emotional and their ability to be intelligent, to use higher like logic and critical thinking tends to go down when we're emotional. And we tend to reach for either learned behavior or communication, either from childhood or maybe from you know past experience in that relationship. So there is there is opportunity in the midst of you know one of the most painful times in life mm-hmm. to really take back your power, mm-hmm. stop blaming the other side, mm-hmm. and really pave a future forward for you and your children. Mm-hmm. Um, and I love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think one of the best things that we can do for our children is set the example of look, we had conflict, but we worked it out, or 
both parents contributed to this. Both parents apologized. There's so much value in demonstrating to that mm. children to the, that to your children. And I think there's also it's amazing for your children to watch you grow, to watch you work hard at something. You know, to watch that resolution. I think that is something that really would would stay with them and be a wonderful example for years to come. A tremendous gift mm -hmm. that we'll keep giving. <laughs> I agree. I, love that. I agree. As we wrap up today, Kathleen, what is your message of hope for you know parents who right now are living in that that space of conflict living with that heartache you know I would say that it is it is a chunk of work you know to navigate going from the relationship of exes to the relationship of co-parents but if you're in the middle of that high conflict situation I know that it takes a toll on your mental and emotional health I know it takes a toll on your ability to navigate relationships in a healthy way I know that stress anxiety and depression is way up and when you start to work through this in a productive way that some of that actually will resolve and come down like you'll feel better because it doesn't feel good to be in the middle of this tornado in the middle of this hurricane and it really does take a toll on us mentally and emotionally and there is some some peace on the other side once you get to a place that's a little bit more working and not so high conflict. I think I hear a lot of people say all of this really takes a toll um, and they just want it to be better. I love that. Thank mm -hmm. you so much for your time. If you want to learn more about Kathleen and about her practice and the work that she's doing to help families navigate the difficulties of conflict, we will include a link to all of her information below. And I hope you'll reach out to contact her. Um, she's a great resource for our families. Thank you so much. We'll see you next time.